I mean, in the human experience, there's nothing much more that messes with us than death. Death in all its forms. I mean, we were told in The Lion King that it was a part of the circle of life, right? But that doesn't, I mean, from a purely biological standpoint, okay, I get that. But we're talking about something that is just totally averse to our very nature. We, we have a hard time. And so death becomes this character, this thing out there that people cheat death, or they beat death, or uh, they do death-defying tricks, like we're in some kind of contest with death to see who can hold out the longest or win. And when someone almost dies, we see that as looking death in the face, or in more lighthearted ways, we're scared to death, but then we resurrect. Death has a characteristic. It has this life, if that's an ironic kind of way to put it. And there are places where death is more, should I say, palatable than others. There's nothing ever easy about it, ever. My grandmother didn't necessarily have a storybook life, but she had an end worth envying. She lived 103 years, almost 104. Never had a heart attack, never had a major surgery, no cancer, no disease. She only took one medication for a little high blood pressure. And she was still in her apartment in her assisted living complex where she walked down the hall to the dining hall every day. And one day there in the facility where she, she kept her own apartment and she was there in the TV room, she was sitting there and she was napping like a lot of people do. And a nurse came by checking on different residents and she said, Myra, and she touched her hand and she knew immediately Myra was gone. I'd gone to sleep and she wasn't waking up. And, and so at that point, with all these residents around, you know, some of you know the drill. You just have to go and get other healthcare providers and aides, and you take Myra out of the room. And even in that scenario, that long life, that dying peacefully in her sleep, we say things like, well, she lived a long life and she's better off. But there's still something inherently wrong with that situation. It was never meant to be that way. And there are all kinds of other, much more disturbing ways that death invades our experience. According to the Centers for Disease Control, accidents of all things, accidents of all kinds are the leading cause of death for people ages 1 to 44. And for ages 15 to 34, what rounds out the second and third leading cause of death is suicide and homicide. All of these preventable scenarios are the leading cause of death in people ages 44 and under. We, sometimes we can see death coming, and sometimes we can brace ourselves for it. We spend enormous amounts of energy trying to prevent it. But sometimes death blindsides us and leaves us flat on the ground wounded. Death is an uninvited invader in God's good world. From the child who grieves over the death of a dog to a community who suffers the loss of a teenager in an auto accident, to a nation who grieves over thousands of their sons and daughters lost in war. And let me time out here just for a second. And not for, this is nobody's fault but mine. But last week I got through all of Sunday and realized it's Veterans Day weekend. And I never said a word. Please forgive me, for one, for a rookie mistake. And two, if there are any of you who have served or are serving in our nation's military presently, veterans or otherwise, would you please stand where you are? We want to recognize you and thank you.
Look around the room and give these guys a big thank you before you leave the, the room. It's people that have willingly give of, given of themselves and some never came home so that others might have life and freedom. People who voluntarily or obediently put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others. These things we applaud. These things we honor. These people we give our thanks. But it's in the face of this unnatural state of, of death. In the 20th century alone, estimates are that 175 million people, military, civilian, or otherwise, lost their lives due to war and war-related deaths all over the globe. And then there are the lives of the 45 million unborn babies aborted in the last 50 years. And that's just in the U.S. alone. We are up to our ears in death and the fear of death. And inside all of us, we understand there is something deeply wrong with our world in the condition of our own hearts. There's something deeply wrong with us. This is the last of our Heaven and Hell series. And we finish with a look at the foundational hope that we Christians bring to the bleak picture that I just unfolded. <laughs> and this is what the biblical authors believed, what Christ revealed and experienced, bodily resurrection, new creation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break or destroy the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There's lots of people in slavery to fear of death. Jesus came to break the power of the one who holds death in his hands. Jesus defeated death. He freed us from the fear of death by the most surprising way possible, by dying. He broke the power of the devil. And how exactly did Jesus confront death? How did he introduce resurrection into the world? Broken by sin. Well, he started, if you read the first parts of the Gospels, he started by announcing a kingdom. He invited people into this kingdom by telling them to repent of their sins, which lead to death. And then he touched individual people who were just riddled with sin and death. He healed diseases. He drove out demons. He raised the dead. He defeated death and other people. And he invited people that religious folk tended to shove to the, to the margins into friendship with him. And he eventually allowed himself to be crucified and to die in order to defeat death. But we all know he didn't stay there. He was resurrected. On the third day, Paul states that if we will identify with Christ in death, we will certainly share in a resurrection like his. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. The idea of resurrection in the Christian faith doesn't make sense if we don't first understand what death is. How can you understand the good news if you haven't confronted the bad news yet or made the bad news more tasteful in some, in some sense? On page 3 of Genesis, we're told how death invaded God's creation through sin. God gave Adam and Eve a clear boundary, and they violated it. 
Humans were tempted, decided not to trust God's love and provision. Defining good and evil for themselves, they took the fruit and separated themselves from God. What were they told? If you eat of this fruit, you will die. Death was introduced because of sin. And that was something creation had never known. Relational separation from the creator and physical death. The Bible has a lot to say about sin and death. Here are just a few. James 1.15 says that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And Romans 6.23 reminds us of the consequences. The wages of sin is death. But, and here's the good news, the free gift of God is eternal life. Life to the age, resurrection. And Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Holy Spirit gives life because of righteousness. It's important to know the nature and the source of death in order to fully appreciate and participate in the cure for it. Namely, the power of resurrection through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But normally what people want is someone to tell them that they'll be okay after they die because they've tried to be a good person. A good person. But the Bible doesn't tell that story at all. That story minimizes the problem and ignores the solution. It makes too little of the problem of sin, and it trivializes the mission of Jesus on this earth. The Bible tells the story of a perfect world, ruined by the sin of humanity, and the great love and effort and cost paid by the one who owed nothing in order to redeem us all. And the large part of that story is resurrection. And here are just a few other passages. But maybe a surprising ending. Acts 24, verse 14 Paul says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. At the end of the parable of the sheep and goats, Matthew 25, Jesus says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, Jesus in John 5 Verse 28, he says, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. All who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And this echoes Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12, verse 1 and 2. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. A careful look at Scripture will tell us that resurrection is not just for those who are in Christ. There will be a resurrection for everyone. Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But some will rise to life, and some will rise to to condemnation. But even as Christians, we don't often speak about resurrection. Culturally, and in, in our churches and in our music, we speak of going to heaven when we die. 
And this eternity, I mean, we've been talking about this and probably sick of hearing it, but it's not just this non-material floating around on clouds spiritual existence. In death, there is a separation of material and immaterial. At death, the body does cease to function in that the breath departs, and by breath, that's both physical air and the spirit. There is a part of you and me that exists apart from this physical body. Then what? I mean, there has to be a non-material part of you that lives on after the physical part of you ceases to function, right? And this is the question that everyone wants answered, correct? You've been at this for, we've been at this for weeks now, and you still haven't told us yet what, how it happens when we die. I'm talking that the Bible doesn't have all that much information about this. It doesn't seem all that interested in answering that question. We're given very little, and what we do have doesn't overtly talk about going to heaven. It talks about being with Jesus. Does that change our focus just a bit? We want to be in a place the Bible says we're going to be with a person. And that's much more important and much more attractive, frankly, to me, wherever Jesus is. And yes, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But when we say we're going to a place, it elevates the place more than the person who got us there. And I want us to say we're going to be with Jesus, wherever that is. And this is what the biblical author stated. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said, I would prefer to be away from the body and present with the Lord. Bible callers call this the intermediate state. And from a Bible standpoint, it's temporary and it's not at all the final solution. He says again in Philippians 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And we all know that line from Jesus on the cross. When he speaks to the criminal beside him today, you will be with me. Where? In paradise, which is another word for garden. We're going back to the garden. Theologian N.T. Wright spoke of this bodily resurrection, and he said, I've heard people say, I'm going to heaven soon, and I won't need this stupid body there, thank goodness. And he said, that's a very damaging distortion of the truth. Wright explains, in the Bible, we're told that you die and enter into an intermediate state, and this will be followed by resurrection into new bodies. He says, our culture is very interested in life after death, but the Bible is much more interested in what I've called life after, life after death. And here's where I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives a huge amount of space in this letter about resurrection about bodily resurrection, about what happens after the after. And there's way too much here to go through word for word. And I would encourage you to, to read through 1 Corinthians 15, especially verses 35 to the end of the chapter. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And verse 35 says, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Which assumes they were talking about having a body to begin with, to me. 
And he starts talking about acorns and wheat and all kinds of seed. You put them in the ground, they start to decay and break, and eventually they cease to exist in the state in which they were put, and they begin to grow into something completely different. Now the DNA within it is the same. But you try to talk to a pecan, or do you call them pecans around here? I don't know. Try talking to this little nut thing that someday, if you're in the right situation, you're going to be this glorious tree who will grow thousands more just like you. Try to explain that to that little guy. And try to explain to us that eventually this little nutty thing, you know, it will eventually be a glorious body that we can't even quite imagine yet. Verse 42 says it's sown then this is planting language, this is garden language. It's sown perishable, it's raised imperishable, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness. Everybody say amen. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural, fleshly body, but it's raised a spiritual body. And now, it's not spirit as in some ghost-like thing, but a body that's governed and directed by the Spirit motivated by the Spirit, enjoying the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 50 says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The way we are right now, we can't just translate this body into that place, into that reality, into that kingdom. The perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable. In other words, an acorn cannot handle the ecosystem of an oak tree. You've never seen a bird make a nest on an acorn. Landlines and modems, landlines and modems can't handle high-speed internet. Everything will be changed. Death will be swallowed up by life. I tell you a mystery, verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That should be um, in, the, in the nursery, right? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You can get it later. In, <laughs> in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ, the dead will be raised, imperishable, we will be changed. The perishable must clothe itself, be wrapped in, imperishable, and when the perishable has been clothed or wrapped up with imperishable and the mortal wrapped up with immortality, then the saying is written that will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. And we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Nowhere to be found. This isn't just an interesting something for someday. I mean, sin can still bite, but it doesn't have teeth. It has no teeth for us who are in Christ. The mindset, it's a whole paradigm shift. The acorn mentality has to go. Think and act like the grand tree you will become. And Paul gives this encouragement. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never for nothing. So, death does not, will not have the last word, ever.
So now what? Now what do we do about this? First John gives us a clue. First John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes like this in him, what do they do? They purify themselves, just as he is pure. Hope of resurrection in the future means experiencing death, burial, and resurrection now as Jesus offers it. And here's where we get a little practical. If we'll be given a body like his, if we'll be raised like he was raised, you want to identify with him in his death and burial so that we can have a resurrection like his, it would make total sense. We would make every effort and make a strong desire to begin that process now, being like him in the power of the spirit that raised him from the dead. If we are God's children because of the work of Christ and our faith in him, it follows we would submit to him and allowing him to make us more like himself now. That we would desire to purify ourselves from all sin now. This isn't just trying to be a better person. This isn't just trying to be good. This is surrender and trust in Jesus to change us. Resurrection we hope for begins when we first give ourselves to Christ. When we die to ourselves, we repent of sin. We cry out to God to save our sin-sick, selfish souls. And when a person places faith in Christ, when they step down into the waters of baptism, there's a death that occurs. It's a death to old self, death to the ego, death to agenda, death to my own will. And coming up out of that water is a resurrection. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God. So the conclusion here is if you want to experience resurrection to eternal life on the day of judgment, on that someday, you must first choose to die to yourself right now. What you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. Experience resurrection in Christ here. Take place in a transformed life here. And it will be a very natural and fearless transition to eventually say goodbye to this broken world and make a glorious and new entrance into the world to come. Second Peter 3 says it this way, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? Looking forward to the day of God, hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire, the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to what? The new heavens and the new earth that he has promised, a world filled with with God's righteousness. Question for all of us is, are we looking forward to that day? Are you looking forward to the day of the Lord, to the day of judgment? Are you looking forward to His coming? If there's any part of you that is not ready for that at all, you need to do some dying before you die. You need some resurrection before you resurrected. You're either raised to eternal life or everlasting shame and contempt. It's your choice, but now is the time if you have not experienced new life to do that. And there's always opportunity after our service to talk to one of us, to have a phone call, go out and have coffee. There is new life to be had, but first you have to die to yourself. Let's pray. God, thank you for the the promise of resurrection. 
that one day all this will be gone and that we will, we will stand before you and we'll either be clothed in the glory and the righteousness of Christ or we'll stand on our own and only a fool represents himself in court. Father, thank you for the covering that comes from, from the blood of Christ and knowing him and trusting in his, his righteousness, his forgiveness, our sin washed away. And I pray that we would have that hope and in doing so, purify ourselves in your power as he is pure and take that influence, that light to our, to our communities and our homes and our workplaces. In Jesus' name, amen.